Hello and welcome to Pre-Published. I'm Sophia. My guest today is Natasha Ferrant. Natasha is the recent winner of the Costa Children's Book Award for her middle grade novel Voyage of the Sparrowhawk. As you'll hear, she's been a children's writer for a long time and awards weren't always on the cards. You might be interested in her answer to my question about when she felt safe as a writer. I wasn't surprised at all. When she's not writing, Natasha is a book scout for foreign publishers, which is how we met. Listen to my lockdown brain failing to grapple with what exactly scouts do, despite the fact that I have first-hand experience of it. Anyway, Natasha describes foreign rights and how important they can be to writers and publishers. Back to the writing. And she describes taking an editor's advice about what to write next after a difficult moment in her career and what happened when the pressure was off to write a better book. I love her suggestions of the book she goes to when she needs inspiration. A couple are already on my list. We recorded this episode in May 2021. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Natasha, welcome to Pre-Published. Sophia, thank you for having me. <laughs> um, this is lovely. I'm sitting where I often sit to record these episodes, but um, unusually, Natasha is actually sitting opposite me tonight, which is great. So I don't have to ask you, as I have been doing recently, you know, what can you see from where you are? Because you can see my son's bedroom. <laughs> I can see your lovely face. Yes. And what a treat it is to be doing this in real life. It's yeah, it's really lovely. Um, and we've got our mint tea beside us, so you might hear us drinking that as we go along. Um and Natasha's very kindly brought her copy of Voyage of the Sparrowhawk with her, which I want to talk a little bit about later. Um, this is the book that won the Costa Children's Book Award uh, in January. Um, and we've just had a little conversation about the fact that it was a Zoom event, which is not quite the same as, as a sort of proper in-person one. Um, but... Nevertheless, um, do do say what you um, the award that you got for yourself. <laughs> oh yeah. So as as I was um, as I was explaining, um, there was no ceremony for the Costa. I mean, there was an online YouTube YouTube thing, which was a lot of fun, but um, but it wasn't an in person thing, and we weren't given actual awards but we were given a little bit um well we were given some prize money and I went out to a um to an art gallery and I bought myself some art I bought myself a forged iron sculpture of a tree um a sort of dancing tree um which is up in my kitchen and is absolutely beautiful and probably more beautiful than an actual award <laughs> that's what I'm telling myself anyway <laughs> sounds very lovely to me um very exciting that you've won it. I remember the first time we met, which was very early on. Um, my first book, Threads, hadn't come out and you were in your other job, which I'm going to come to, um, as a scout. And you had very kindly um, found foreign publishers who might be interested in it. Um, and it was London Book Fair event and it was all very exciting. Um, so I was at the very beginning of my career and I think your first book must have come out the year before. Um, what year was it? So it was 2009 that we met. Yes, it was. Uh, yes. Um, so we were both kind of early on and 
And over the years, we've both cried on each other's shoulders at different <laughs> moments. <laughs> I remember wondering around... why do we bother? Um, and and yeah. here I am talking to you after your your Costa win, which is a very very lovely thing. And we're both in very different places. We're both in very different places. Mm. It does show that persistence pays a certain amount of amazing talent. In your case, I think certainly pays off. And and one of the things that the Costa people said was that Voyage of the Sparrowhawk is a book that makes you fall in with reading and I really like that because I think that your books show what a great reader you are and how in love with literature you are that there's a lovely sort of literariness to them um so I'm really interested in how you got into reading and what books got you started gosh um well first of all thank you for saying such lovely things about me and um and we'll come back to those two words you used, which were very kindly. I very kindly um, did got publishers interested in your books. It wasn't nothing to do with my kindness, and all to do with your talents, Sophia. But um, what got me into reading? I mean, listen, this is something I talk about a lot when I do school visits, and I ask kids to if they remember the moment when they first knew how to read, and I remember. I, I sort of think that I remember exactly where I was when I could read, not put words together, you know, not, not sort of put letters into words and words into paragraph, but that extraordinary taking the stabilizers off the bicycle moment when the words stop being words and a book stops being a book and you're in a story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was at school in my memory. <laughs> in this memory, I'm at school, which was at the time the French Lycée on, on Cromwell Road. And I'm sitting at my desk and there's a window on my right and there's sunlight. And I've got this book called François Le Bossu by the Comtesse de Ségur, which is a very classic, classic French book. And um, and suddenly everything disappears and I'm no longer in the classroom and there's no longer a desk or a window or the Cromwell Road. There's just a castle and a past century and three children playing in a park and I'm there with them. Um and from that moment on, it was just, it just felt like magic. It just felt right. My father had always told us stories. He Every night he used to make up stories for us. Um, and they sort of rolled on from one night to the next. Um, so I guess we'd grown up being told stories. And my mum used to travel to Russia every year and she'd come back with these extraordinary Russian fairy tales um, that she, in Russian that she would then translate for us into French and we were living in London so it was this sort of extraordinary international connectedness to stories as well um but yes I think just from when I was very very young that's how that was how I apprehended the world was through stories um anyway so after that moment in the classroom I read everything I get my hands on in French and then I learned to read in English and then I discovered Enid Blyton and read everything by Blyton that I could read um, and I always say, you know, people give Inya Blyton a bad rap, but actually she, I think more than any author, is the, she's the author who made me into a reader. That is so interesting. I feel very lucky that my mother never censored my reading. So I had my Blyton moments and I was allowed to have them, but I had friends who weren't. They were told that was Inya Blyton was beneath them. But yeah, for me, I was just taught that books were fun. You know, yes, you're turning the pages, exactly. it's a good thing. And they're, they're exciting Completely. stories and I want to be part of them. So that was okay. Yeah. 
so and same with me and my dad actually bless him would just sort of come back with you know I was reading St Clair's so he'd sort of come back with the next six St Clair's books and then all the Manor and Towers books and then from then on you know it was series after series the the the, the Little House on the Prairie um I can't I'm sort of trying to think of all, what what order everything came into but anyway the moment was um the the moment which is the moment for so many children's writers is the line the witch in the wardrobe and yeah. it's very specifically the moment when lucy goes through the wardrobe you know she opens the door and she steps in and she puts out her hand and she starts feeling the fur if you this is a shame that this is audio because otherwise you'd see me sort of stroking <laughs> <Yes>. the fur <laughs> stroking the f- imaginary fur and then and then it's wood under her fingers and then she hears a crunch under her feet and she thinks that it's like snow and then the next thing she knows she's in a wood and it's snowing and it just blew my mind when i read it as a how can it not? Yeah. Yes. It's just, and funnily enough, I have told that story so many times in schools. And every time this sort of hush descends on the room as I describe that moment. Um, it's, it's one, it's, I mean, it's, I, you know, you read, you read a lot of stories about portals when you're in my line of work. And, <laughs> and I don't think anybody, I can't think of anybody who's done it better than that. That that moment is just, it's it's seminal. It's textbook. It's just perfect. There is and, a book out called From Spare Oom to Wardrobe. Yes, by Catherine there? Langrish, and I really want to buy it. Um, in fact, I must buy it. In fact, I will buy it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really keen um, to read it too. Yeah, it, it looks wonderful. Um, and she's a really, really wonderful writer as well. Um so so I think that is that was the moment which confirmed me as a writer because it just showed me how just how big stories can be. You know, until then, even though I read voraciously and even though stories opened up different worlds and in the, I must have read about magic before, but I hadn't read whole worlds whole whole um oh, what's the word? I don't want to use the word religion, mythologies. Yes, yeah. That, you know, that just been that he just recreated an entire universe. It was, it just, just completely blew my mind that this was what books could do. And so the way I talk about it with kids in schools, it's like, like, you know, it's like the book was magic and I wanted to be a magician. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting. Sometimes with, with teaching, you know, a student may ask, can I do this? And and the answer is just always, always, always yes. Um, the thing that whatever it might be, it might not work in practice. You might read back over whatever it is and think, actually, that didn't come out the way I intended. But yes, whatever idea you have, yeah, talking yes, mice <laughs> with swords. I mean, you know, Reaper cheap for God's sake! What a ridiculous creature. But not actually, because Lewis imbued him with. Well, he has this extraordinary thing, doesn't he? Of oh, Reaper Cheap is is a fierce warrior, and he is still a mouse. Yeah, he's still very much a mouse. He sort of somehow manages to keep the essence of mouseness, but at the same time make him a fierce warrior, which um, which which is an extraordinary feat. And in answer to the question, can I do it? It's like yes, if it, if but make it make sense. Absolutely. 
yes, you really do have to leap into it as a writer, don't you, and inhabit it. And Inhabit it, and there are rules. You know, there are rules in Narnia, and there are rules in... in um... Lord of the Rings, there are rules in all fantasy. And when, 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 when an author, you can tell when an author doesn't really understand their world. Um, it, it, yes, then, then, then you stop believing in it. Yes, absolutely. Um, so there you were. You were a you were a passionate reader. Um, you obviously had parents who were very keen on books and in multiple languages. And at what point? Did you turn into a writer? I don't mean a professional writer, but I mean perhaps a you know a school poet or whatever it might be. <laughs> I think when I was in what's the so Sankyem, which would be year eight, we had to do a um, we had to do a writing. We had a sort of writing assignment. It had to be about the Second World War, and it had to be you know much longer than most of our creative writing assignments. And we had several months in which to do it, and we had to go off and interview people and and stuff. And my teachers at the, I got a very good mark on it and my teacher said to my mother, oh, this one has a gift for writing. And I was so disappointed because I thought she meant handwriting. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, what a sort of useless gift to have, you know, having, having mm-hmm. neat handwriting. Um, but but then I understood what she meant. I think probably around then, maybe when I was about 15, I wrote a lot of bad poetry. Um I think on and off, I always knew I wanted to be a writer, but it took me quite a long time to pick up, to have the confidence to believe that yeah. I had something to say. Absolutely. It took me well over a decade. Yeah. Yeah. And it is that thing about, you know, do I have something to say? Um, I thought, well, no, no, <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> Um, and then when I left university, I started trying to write. I mean, I started not trying to write. I started writing. Um, I don't think I had that much to say until after my children were born. Yes, I agree. Same here, really. Yeah. I tried. I wrote three detective novels, none of which got published. Quite yeah. right, too. Um and of course, that's what I'm doing now. But I, I, still, then I I did want to write for children, but I found that I couldn't I couldn't do it until I had kids around me, even though they weren't necessarily the right age. Mm. Um, so yes, yeah. Well, actually, my first two novels were, were adult novels. But I mean, again, then I but then I wrote about families and about having children, and it. I don't know. I just I I just didn't feel I had that much to say. And in fact, then I, I complained about it quite a lot. So I was like, oh, I want to write, but I didn't know what to say. <laughs> and then eventually a friend of mine, actually at the Frankfurt Book Fair, this very tall Swedish publisher, I used to have dinner with regularly at book fairs, just slammed his hand down on the table between us and just said memorably, Natasha, a writer writes. <laughs> <laughs> so true <laughs> so true i mean completely unarguable and um and then i started taking it seriously I and mean, then i then i sort of started you know getting into a routine and yeah it's like a writer doesn't sit around complaining about wanting to be a writer a writer actually just does writes. the hard work <laughs> yes but there you were and you were so you were at the frankfurt book fair at this moment uh because you already had a job in publishing mm. and was scout your first job no so i mean my first job in publishing was a thoroughly disastrous temping job 
um, as a somebody secretary. Um, I knew absolutely nothing about anything. Um, but for some reason, they took me on for five weeks. Um, I didn't know how anything worked. Any, I mean, when I think back on it, uh, anyway, moving on, five weeks. I can't have done, I must have done something right because then the rights director took me on for three months. Um, and from then on, my career in publishing has always been in foreign rights. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about what foreign rights are? Yes. Tell us a bit about foreign rights. Well, I kind of didn't even know they existed when I started out no, as a writer, no, so nobody, this was all news to me. Nobody does. And yet, and yet, foreign rights is what can make or break a book. When you have a contract with a publisher, the publisher will... What, what you're essentially selling a publisher is intellectual property. And you're selling them the right the rights to publish your creation for a certain number of years in a certain number of territories. So they might just buy British and Commonwealth, a sort of lovely old-fashioned thing that we call it, British and Commonwealth rights, which is to publish just in the English language in a certain number of territories. Or, in order to make the most money, most money possible, they will buy rights to, to sell translation, sell, to sell that piece of property that you that you have leased them essentially um to then sort of lease it in in different languages does that make sense or different different languages or even or movie rights or then you get into merchandising rights um dramatic rights audio rights um but yeah it's the the you're essentially selling the allowing the publisher to sell rights on your behalf or you can keep hold of the rights and your agent will sell them on your behalf. Yes, I've, I've had it work both ways. Um, but I know that publishers love to get the world rights if they can, can't they? Because then they can, as you say, they can sell the those rights on and make yeah. some money out of it. Yeah. And do, you, do you work generally for publishers who have world rights or do you work with agents too? Oh, so the way, so what and literally, so yeah, so for years I worked for first for Orion and then for HarperCollins selling rights in the in the department in the rights department first in adult rights and then I moved into children's um, when I moved to HarperCollins um, and now what I do is I sort of sort of flipped it so that I'm on the acquiring side rather than the selling side so you're so that's, buying books in French and German so I'm not but, translated so, into so, English. So I'm not buying. So what <laughs> well, a literary yeah. so what a literary scout does is I look for I look for books on behalf of my clients to translate into their languages. So I work for publishers and just one publisher in each territory in France, Germany, Italy, Finland, Norway, Spain, and the Netherlands, Israel. And I work for a couple. I work for a TV company and for an animation company. So that's ten countries or ten ten clients. Um, and I look for books for them to translate into their language. Or in the case of the TV and animation company, I look for books for them to turn into films or TV. So your your job consists of finding things, reading things, recommending things. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. <laughs> so I described myself as what was it? My husband came up with a with the phrase, an international literary matchmaker. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I do. And essentially, my job boils down to reading a lot and chatting a lot. 
Sounds lovely to me. It is lovely. I write a lot of long reports as well. I mean, I do. That's the, the tyranny of us for the scouters, the, the weekly or fortnightly report. But um, And you need to know what kind of thing they're looking for. And, and does I that vary from country to country, territory to territory? It does vary. Um, it's, it's actually weirdly varying less and less. Okay. Um, I mean, globalisation, yeah. essentially. Um, more and more. It's getting, I think it's getting hard. It's definitely getting harder to sell foreign rights. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. You've done really well. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing all right. Um, um, yeah, it is. Um, that's that's interesting. I mean, I, I suppose perhaps the reason that British authors are like, well, I was anyway, are so unaware of this. I mean, when, when I was writing threads, I was an ambitious girl and I was picturing the branded pencil cases, you talk about merchandising, yeah, yeah. that we would do and the fashion little items that mm. we would make. And I was designing my dress for the Oscars for the screenplay. <laughs> but it never occurred to me that it would appear in German. Yes. Um, and which is, by the way, where it's sold the best. Mm. Um and I, it must be because we don't translate that much, certainly in children's literature. We translate hardly anything into into English. Uh, Moomin's Baba. Moomin's Baba, Pippi Longstocking. I mean, no, some fairly Tintin, Asterix, no, some fairly major properties translated into into English. Well, I mean, trans- but those are but those are all properties that are translated. I mean, those are sort of worldwide massive franchises. Yes. Um, but in terms of modern literature in terms of what's actually being written at the moment we buy in very very little yes um so yeah but but actually if you then go I mean, if you go on holiday to france or italy and look at the bestseller lists you'll see quite a lot a lot of that bestseller list is english language origin i always feel so guilty that there are these lovely open-minded countries reading our stuff and we're not they're not returning the favor yeah well, nobody's forcing them to buy us i don't think you should feel guilty okay <laughs> But they are doing it less, um, and that what they're finding is it's expensive. It's expensive to buy buy in rights. You know, you're um, you're paying in advance to the writer, to the author. You're paying a translator as well. Um, you don't have authors on hand to do publicity and marketing. So more and more, what I'm finding is that they're focusing on they're focusing on books that they feel are certain bestsellers. Recommendation: Write about the Queen. <laughs> recommendation write about the queen except Absolutely. i got there first so sorry about that no, no, i'm not going to write about the queen. <laughs> um oh the translator side of it i have been incredibly lucky and particularly with french and german translators my favorite thing is when i'm watching tv with the family and and i suddenly get a, a, an urgent text from a translator going on page 73 what did you mean when you said this <laughs> and and it's it's kind of rare, and it just worries me for the you know all the many translators who don't get in touch, who just wing it when I've been ambiguous about something. But maybe you haven't been, you know. I so I had. It's, it's fun that you said that because I I have spent a little chunk of this afternoon responding to a Japanese translator mm. who, oh my god, unbelievable, sent me diagrams. So say so on chapter chapter such and such. <laughs> yeah. This is what you describe. So this is what I see, and she drew these. I mean, beautiful oh, diagrams. Yes. Um, of of and here is here are some deer, and here is an electric fence, and here are some trees, and here is the path. <laughs> How big is the area? I'm just. I don't know. I wrote this book in 2016 <laughs> <laughs> or 2017 or whenever it was. It was published. It was 
Children of Castle Rock. It came yes, out in yeah. it came out in twenty eighteen. <laughs> but then I looked. I so she she was so precise. She gave she had gave the page number and everything, and I reread it all. And I said, "It's exactly as you've drawn it." It's thrilling, isn't it? She that... sent me three diagrams, three different oh. scenes, and it was each time it was like, "Yes, you've got it. You've got it exactly right." So. Maybe we're good. Maybe we're doing our job well with our with our words, and that's why the translators aren't getting in touch. Oh, but... maybe. But I, I I love it when they do. My I've had a lot of sort of back and forth with my Italian translator for for the Winds or Not, and she's absolutely awesome. I am so privileged because she translated the other Bennett writing about the Queen. She she translated Ooh. the Uncommon Reader, which is just simply mm. amazing. Um, and and the precision that that they they have to go through and, the, yes. and just the fact i mean because you know we're sort of um both linguists but but i know i can do a very pedestrian translation if i try mm. really hard into another language but they create a separate work of art yes because it has to work on its own terms yeah. in yeah. the other culture yeah and yes i must i must definitely do an episode with translators just yeah, praising no, into should. the skies because it's amazing yeah. what they do and there was this lovely thing there's other this sort of lovely little little aside but she said there was a a house in Children of Castle Rock called Calva, which actually was the name of a house that we stayed in on um, on Iona. And she said, is this the name of a person? Because in Japan, houses don't have names. Ah. Uh... It's like, well, sorry. <laughs> it's the name of that house. But yes, all these little quirks of language, which of course need to work. She'll need to find a way around that. Yes. Or just, yes. you know, insert, you know, and the house was called Calva in the grand Scottish tradition or whatever. Yeah, I don't know, I don't know how she'll do it. They're good at that. I'd, I had a lot of puns in my earlier books and I used to think, oh no, poor translator, because this is just untranslatable. You mm. know, I've used a particular thing that's just unique to English. But apparently they, they love it because that's when they get to do their own thing. <laughs> that's when they really get going. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And they, they create their own little thing. And whenever I... I'm, I can read it and understand it if it's in a language that I speak. I'm always just so impressed. Yeah. They thought of it and think, oh, they must have had such yeah. a little moment of joy when they, yeah. they came I mean, that, that The version. sort of Holy Grail and all that was, um, was uh, Anthea Bell's translations of Asterix. Oh, yes. Which are yes. just absolute works of art. The and names. she's And, you know, because the names are all puns. In, I mean, they're all puns in French. And she's just, she just took them and made them her own um, really beautifully. Um, so that's the world I'm in. Yeah, um, basically looking for books for, looking for English language books for foreign publishers to translate. Um, just children's books or adult books as well. Just children's books. Yeah, just children's books. Um, and it I, it took me a long time to accept that this is a real job, <laughs> but I've been doing it for twenty years, so it must be. And I must be doing something right. You must be. And mm. does this mean you get to go to the, the glamorous book fairs and swan around? Well, you said you were at Frankfurt and, um, Frankfurt and Bologna. I don't, and... I don't think I swan around. <laughs> Actually, worked but... <laughs> but um But, and, and they're not that glamorous either. Oh. But, um, but yes, I do go to Frankfurt and Bologna. I used to go to New York once a year as well. Um, Paris a bit. Milan a bit. Hamburg. Yeah, no, it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> so you're doing that. I was thinking, and you're At reading... the moment I do Zoom. Yeah, yeah the moment you do Zoom, exactly. Yeah. So you're reading a huge amount for work. And yes. does that help with the writing or hinder? Because you've got these other people's words coming into your head. How do you how do you manage that? Yeah, it's hard. Um, it, it, it's really hard. And, I, and actually sort of getting harder 
Um, I don't know why it's getting harder, but it just is. Anyway, so I have to work quite hard to keep the two separate. Um, I mean, there are ways in which it's, it's, there are ways in which they help, you know, um, it, it helps my scouting, the writing helps my scouting in as much as I know a lot of, I have met a lot of people through writing and I have a greater understanding of the trade through my writing career, yeah. which, because I'm not, for my, my foreign, well, for my clients, I'm not only reporting on individual books, I'm also reporting on trends and not only reporting on trends in, in books, but also trends in book selling and trends in publishing, trends in marketing and publicity. So, so all of that helps. Um, um, so the writing helps the scouting. Oh, the scouting, does it help the writing a bit in that I sort of understand what works in the market or not? But then, you does know, does that help? I mean, no, it doesn't. It doesn't help <laughs> Normally at all. the first piece of advice we give to people is, you know, don't ignore it. it yeah, and, and I ignore it. You know, I mean, the classic thing is, you know, historical standalone middle grade fiction of... 60,000 words is just not going to sell internationally so that is what I wrote <laughs> it is what you wrote and I was I was kind of meeting up with you when you were writing it and I was thinking and when it you know first came out and yeah. I was hoping it would work but I wasn't sure if it would and then it just did it took off like a rocket it's taken off really well in the, in this country which has been wonderful um and and it has it's sold in a couple of countries before the Costa and a few more since. So it's, you know, no, it's done well. And um, Children of Castle Rock before that. And Children of Castle Rock, I think, is what I was writing when we when yes. I last saw you. Yeah. Yes. And that, yes, and that took off. That took off brilliantly, even without winning the Costa. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I what, sort of feel I can say this after years and years, as you said, of, of you know, complaining and crying and weeping and gnashing well, my teeth and thinking nothing would ever get anywhere I think you've earned it because um I I think the first book of yours that I read was After Iris yes. and it was more of a slightly more of a young adult book I think it was that sort of tween audience. yes yeah yeah and absolutely gorgeous house and wonderful I mean that classic thing that you know that we writers do is sort of get rid of the parents and have mm. children feral children wandering around with um inappropriate yeah. <laughs> adults and really gorgeous voice to it um voices i mean you you had so many different characters in it who were all just so vivid um and that didn't some for whatever reason who knows but it didn't have quite the same traction and then what what was your thinking about writing a little bit younger ch turning to children of castle rock it felt to me like it was a slightly different twist to your style completely different um and so yes so that was after iris and there were three more books in that series mm. um and they did, I mean, After Iris has done perfectly respectably, um, and then others in the series. Some sold better than others. Um, but it does fall in that very difficult age. Um, I mean, I don't mean difficult age in real life, but in book selling, um, which is that sort of in-between age. Um, so that sort of age where people sort of go, oh, I can never find books for, I can never find books for girls sort of, or for children sort of 12 plus. And it's like, and that's because nobody can sell them. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I wrote those for years, so I know that feeling. Um, yeah. Yes, actually Threads was in that same sort of, um, in that same area. I yeah, don't, I don't know what the sales were, but, um, but, you know, but, but in my case, respectable, but, and then I was very lucky that with Faber, I have a publisher who, um, tend to stick with their authors 
That's interesting. Um, And Alice, my editor, was sort of like, okay, something's not working. And then she said, okay, what is working in the trade at the moment is standalone middle grade. So standalone 9 to 12. Yeah. So that's what you should write. And then she said this really unfortunate thing, (laughs) which was like, I want you winning prizes. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, know, Sparrowhawk now has. But actually it was just like, okay, no pressure. Exactly. (laughs) And it was hard. It was really hard making that change. Um, from... And did you do it because she asked you to? Did you trust her enough to yeah. think, I will do this thing that I'm not entirely comfortable doing because mm. that's what she's asked me to do? That's awesome. Yeah, she's a very strong personality. And I, yeah, I actually have immense faith in her. Um, and she pushes me to, I mean, I say often about Sparrowhawk that is, you know, it was written with my blood and tears. Um, it was a really, really painful book to write. But but Children of Castle Rock was, and we had to delay publication because I just wasn't getting there. Mm. Um, and I was so stressed about writing it. And then she said, okay, do you know what, mate? We're going to just push publication for seven, seven months on. And within, honestly, within half an hour, I knew what I needed to do to to, um, to make the book better. It was, it was, it was extraordinary. It was that immediate um, just freeing up your brain and yeah. relaxing a bit. It's just like I'm no longer working to a deadline. Yeah. I've got all the time I need, and suddenly it all. And suddenly the first the first paragraph came to me. You know, imagine a house and a garden. And until then, it's just been plod, 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 plod. <laughs> Would you mind? I don't. I haven't had somebody do this for ages, but um, I have heard you because I think it was at your book lunch. Um, heard you read the beginning. Would you mind doing it so people can hear how it went? Uh, This is chapter one, Goodbye Cherry Grange. Gosh, it's been a long time. (laughs) Imagine a house in a garden. The paint is flaking and the chimney is cracked and the uncut grass is wild. But ignore all that. Look here instead at the giant wisteria with a trunk as thick as your arm, its purple flowers dripping against the old stone wall. Look at the swing hanging from that ancient oak, those cherry trees planted in a circle around the house. One of the trees is so close to a window that in summer, when it fruits, the girl who lives here can reach out to pick the cherries. Imagine that, picking cherries from your bedroom window. Love that. <laughs> and then they're about to leave. Yeah. Um, and off they go. On their and off they go with their very dodgy dad. <laughs> very dodgy dad. <laughs> Um, criminal dad yeah <laughs> it's interesting it, it's it sounds almost old-fashioned this idea of, of a publisher kind of sticking with an author through thick yeah. and thin yeah um so it often is, nowadays it's sort of you know it's it's all in sales figures and once you start the, the downward spiral it's it's hard to sort of pick it up again um and I'm I'm a huge advocate of people believing in people because I just I I love I love the stories of of I don't know Dick Francis and and other sort of writers of the fifties and sixties you just hear about who you know had written fifteen novels or something mm. before the big one took off or you know Jacqueline Wilson had written yeah. so many before yeah. Tracy Beaker came along. When um, you learn your trade, don't you? You yeah, learn you to you. I mean, that's certainly what happened to me. Gosh, I mean, I think back to the first book I wrote and I cringe. Um, I mean, the first book I published. 
yeah. You learn as you go along. Like any trade, you get yeah. better. Well, hopefully. I mean, it's, a, it's a very welcoming industry for debut writers, I think, which I, I thoroughly approve of. It's wonderful, you know, having mm. been a debut writer, it was people welcomed me in and I try and welcome new people in and that's wonderful. So that side of it's really nice, but I think there can be too much focus among, I don't know, critics and other people on yeah. the debut writers. Um, but as you say, people who've been, who are on there know eighth or ninth mm. have learnt their trade and yes it's, and the trade is brutal you know you, you you i mean i read something recently which i just thought was wonderful and i spoke to people about it and they said oh yeah no she doesn't have a great track record and then yeah but this is amazing come on cut the little, <laughs> cut, cut, cut us some slack <laughs> but um yeah the sort of debut think... debut what's the next thing what's the next thing what's the next thing and actually sometimes you think come on guys let's just I mean honestly at the moment I think there's some wonderful books being published and for me for me the best books being published at the moment are by writers who've been writing for quite a, for a while now and they're just hitting the top of their game yeah um um and debuts are debut debuts sometimes they're super fresh but usually they sometimes they're very raw I mean, raw is good sometimes. Yes, but, I mean they, but, they often but, do have a have a, a different quality to them. They, yeah. they absolutely capture your attention, but it's really interesting to see how that writer then yeah. later develops and mm. does other things. How many books had you written? Do you think before you felt safe as a writer that this this was something that you could do, would be doing on a regular basis? Safe. <laughs> I thought you might look at me like that. <laughs> I am talking to the Costa Children's winner here. Safe. <laughs> Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> I don't feel safe. I'm beset with doubt on a daily basis. Every day I sit down at my desk and I think I'm not going to be able to do it. It's amazing, isn't it? I thought Every... you might say that. <laughs> I'm sorry. Every single day. Yeah. Yeah. Scary. So Why that's that's 14 books. <laughs> So um, I don't know why do we, you know, more more and more I come back to that phrase. I can't, I don't know who originally said it, which is I can only imagine one thing worse than writing, and that's not and writing. That's not writing. <laughs> exactly. I had one of those days today. I mean, it, it it is better, I guess, because I I know that I've had them before. I know that I have yes. many many of them with Love Song. My hardest book to write was Love Song. I just had them for months, and. And it's the book that won a prize. I love so, that book. Yeah. Uh, so there we go. So that's mm. what I tell myself now. Um, but but still, I mean, if I didn't have that, yeah, today was a crappy, crappy day. Yeah. And yeah, for me, too. for me too. For me too. So you don't grow out of them, sadly. Um, but I think you're right. I think there are crappy days. And yes, I am beset with doubt. But actually, deep down, there is also, I know, I know that this is part of the process. Yes. Um, and if I journal enough, or do my morning pages <laughs> enough, or reflect enough, or whatever, whatever enough, I can remind myself that I have somewhere deep down inside me the faith that I will be able to get to the end of it. Me too. Now, didn't always. No. Um, yeah. and, and I think for me it was Castle Rock. Really? Okay. Yeah. And how many was that? Ten. Yeah. Interesting. Nine, ten. It, I, yeah. I, I noticed we both do this thing that I've, I've spoken about um, before on the podcast, which is um, this writers Zoom writers group 
Um, yes. And and I got a thing today. You might have got the same thing that said um, quality comes out of quantity. I yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. They have because they have their daily um, their daily what pep talk. Yes. <laughs> or or inspirational quote, not pep talk. Yes, I heard that, and I I consequently wrote four pages of absolute gibberish. <laughs> you were writing it but help. I was writing and by the end of the fourth page of gibberish fourth page of gibberish I knew what I needed to do to make that scene work that is so often what happens isn't it I mean very much yeah. uh, there are writing exercises along yeah. that it's exactly completely. just free write uh, yeah. a good one to do free write for five minutes mm. just keep the words flowing even if you hate what's coming out yeah. then, then find a little bit and write on that and gradually exactly. something will come Ishiguro does it. Well, if Ishiguro does it, then it must work. <laughs> um, talking of Ishiguro, do you have writing gurus? People who's either <coughs> either writers of fiction. Oh, okay. Um, we're, we're having a look at the time here. Um, nearly there. Um, writers of fiction who you um, admire or writers about writing whose work you return to for thoughts on how to do it. I'm reading one at the moment called The Science of Storytelling, which is interesting. Who's that by? Do you know? William Storr. Okay. It's about sort of neuroscience of basically how, why we tell ourselves sto- stories. Oh, lovely. Then, oh, that sounds great. <clears throat> and then how that we translate that into storytelling. Yeah. Um, do you know what? I think the writers that I have learnt the most from and the ones that I appreciate most and mo- more and more are sort of great stylists so one of my first loves when I graduated from children's books to adult books was P.G. Woodhouse oh same um <laughs> he's perfect his craftsmanship his level of craftsmanship not just I mean his each sentence is perfect but actually the plotting those the intricate plotting of those novels in which nothing is wasted nothing is lost yes um so he's a great master of plotting and then Completely different genre, but Eva Ibbotson as well. Her plotting is meticulous from beginning to end. There's not, there's barely a detail that 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 is wasted. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you you're reading it thinking, oh, this is lush description. Yes. Then you go back on the second or third reading and go, oh, that line was relevant. That line came up yes. later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. It's fascinating. Exactly that. Um, and that only you only get that from you know working and reworking and reworking a a, a book. Um, so they're two writers who I um, I come back to again and again and learn from again and again. And funnily enough, you see, during lockdown, I reread at great, great personal cost, <laughs> War and Peace. Oh, well done. And yes, it took Lightly. a long time. It took a very, very, very long time. In lockdown, when nobody could concentrate on anything, no. and not being able to concentrate on War and Peace, it's just a quote, it just went on and on and on. But I did it. I did reread it. And then I just recently reread Anna Karenina. And much as I love those books, I know there's a lot you can learn from Tolstoy, but, but Concision is not one. No. Um, and there are many details which don't seem to... I, yeah, I'm just not. So here am I dissing Tolstoy on your podcast. <laughs> Go with it; it's fine. <laughs> no, 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 but I mean, he's he, no where where you learn from Tolstoy is in that precision, that the detail of the descriptions, which make so that you know. I mean, you know almost exactly where each leaf is on a tree because it's so it's so detailed. 
um, and so you're completely there you're completely in the moment in the scene but um so so yes that from him but from the other from those other two Ibbotson and P.G. Woodhouse it's that's that sense that nothing is lost and there is one one novel which is by neither of them but it's um Rumor Godden's The Green Gage Summer yes which I know of but haven't read that is a masterclass in what we're just talking about. Okay. It's an absolute masterclass where you... And it's again... Again, you just get this feeling that you're on this sort of long, hot, dreamy summer in which there's this whole sort of coming of age and these children are just sort of left to themselves and it just gets tighter and tighter and closer and closer and then there's this sort of absolutely razor-sharp ending in which you realise all those dreamy details like you said, all those dreamy details have all come together to create this, this is, yeah, it's a brutal ending. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's brilliant. Brilliantly, brilliantly, brilliantly done. Like A bit like The Usual Suspects, you know? Yes, yes. You know that final scene in The Usual Suspects when you go, oh, 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 it's all of those things. Oh, oh. Right. I love it when you have to unravel something and yeah. yes, revisit everything you... No, that's okay. what she, no, no, so she's, uh, that's, that's a, fantastic book to learn from i think great well i normally um ask my guests what their writing tips are but i think i'm going to leave it with those reading tips because i think they're lovely <laughs> i've got to go off and i'm not going to do the tall story but um no no but, but rumor god and i will very happily go off and read yeah and, and the writing tips we've talked to i think we've sort of touched on anyway brilliant well thank you so much it's been thank so you. lovely talking to you it's been lovely being here I'd like to thank Christopher Pett for editing and producing this episode of Pre-Published. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. You can also join us on Twitter at Pre-Pub Podcast, and find me at my children's books website, which is sophiabennett.com, or my adult crime series website, which is sjbennettbooks.com. <laughs>